You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Thank you for being with us in worship. Once again, to our seniors, congratulations. Uh, We're so happy for you. Uh, We are returning to our study in the Gospel of Luke. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Uh, This time last year, Ellen and I were returning from leading an educational tour in Israel. And we are filled with so many wonderful memories, but one was jockeyed as I was studying this text. And so picture this, we're leaving Jerusalem, we're heading to uh, the Red Sea, which is in the south. And we stop at Qumran and Gedi, Masada, the Dead Sea, and we get to the Red Sea. And one of the things I didn't plan uh, on encountering was, what would it be like to celebrate the Shabbat or Sabbath while studying and touring. Uh, Another thing is the family that we went with did all the hotel booking, and they booked us in a really nice hotel called uh, the King Herod Hotel, looking out to the mountains of Moab, sitting right on the Red Sea. But this hotel was a kosher hotel. And what's unique about a kosher hotel on the Sabbath is there are some practices that we just didn't anticipate. One is uh, we were introduced to what's called a Uh, Shabbat elevator. And what that elevator is like is it's pre-programmed. You don't do a thing. You stand in front of it. It opens. You get on. But one of the things is if you're going up to the 22nd floor, picture this, because it's pre-programmed for every floor, you're stopping 22 times. That can be a bit frustrating even for the religious Jew, if you will. Uh, Interestingly, they had Gentile elevators, which, of course, we preferred, but a Jew who didn't want to ride the kosher or Sabbath elevator would come on over and say, hey, could you hit number 22 and shoot them right up? They liked that. But the kicker was Saturday morning. I'm up early, went down, breakfast was all ready, and there was a huge coffee bar, beautiful uh, latte machine ready to go, but I couldn't find anybody who was... uh, Uh, working or making lattes. And then I noticed a sign above the coffee machine, and it said this, this coffee machine does not work on Shabbat. (laughs) I just cracked up. I thought it was hilarious. So then the Gliori family comes down. Tracy, like me, loves coffee. I said, Tracy, check this out. And I highlighted the sign, this coffee machine does not work on on Shabbat. And I could see a little bit of frustration, even tension with Tracy. And I says, you know what, Tracy? I think this is a teachable moment. Because going back 2,000 years, if there was one controversial thing that Jesus encountered with the religious establishment, it was over how he practiced the Sabbath and kept the Sabbath day holy. In fact, you'll read in the four gospel accounts, there were six times where Jesus got in trouble with the religious establishment because he practiced it one way and they practiced it many other ways and there was a clash. And so this morning, we're going to look at a text 
where Jesus basically gets in trouble with the religious establishment. So again, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses. My topic this morning, more Jesus, less religion. Martin Luther said this, that religion is the default mode of the human heart. Now, I want to take a moment and define what I mean by religion, just so we have clarity this morning. Religion, I define it as man-made rules and regulations that, when kept, earn merit or favor with God. Religion is man reaching up to God, trying to appease him, and earning his blessing. Religion says, do work, perform, merit, and, and it results in pride, and it makes performance and achievement the foundation for our faith. And so we're going to see how something so beautiful, the gift of Sabbath, got codified, became a practice that somehow if kept perfectly, uh, earned favor or merit with God, and Jesus pushes back on that. I hope you downloaded your digital guide. There was a sermon outline. And so let me start with the blessing today. And the blessing is this. Because Jesus is Lord, we're going to see that in this passage, each one of us should pursue more of Jesus and less of religion. And so this morning, I want to share with you four pursuits that come right from this text. And these are God-honoring pursuits. These are liberating pursuits that set us free in our faith. So pursuit number one, pursue truth and discern tradition. Now, if you would, look at the first few verses in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let's take a look. On a Sabbath, Jesus passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them. But some of the Pharisees says, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So as the New Testament opens, we see this huge controversy with Jesus and how the religious establishment kept Sabbath and how Jesus and his disciples kept Sabbath. So the four gospel accounts record six confrontations. One has to do right here with the picking of corn, which they deemed as work, and the other five had to do with beautiful miracles, healings and caring and ministry to people. But all six of those became confrontational with Jesus. Now I want to paint a picture of what it was like in the first century for the average Jew who wanted to keep Sabbath. I find it amazing that there's two documents, they're commentaries on the Old Testament. One is what's called the Jerusalem Talmud, one is called the Babylonian Talmud. And when you put those two together, we have 1,521 things you could not do on the Sabbath. Those documents had 40 to 50 pages that codified Sabbath keeping and keeping that day holy. So, for instance, Acts talks about a Sabbath day's journey. That was 2,000 cubits, which is about six-tenths of a mile. So if you went, walked more than six-tenths of a mile, just one step more, you broke the Sabbath. I find it interesting you couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. Couldn't tie your shoe. Why? That would be work. Um, 
a scribe whose uh, occupation, of course, is, is writing, couldn't carry a pen on the Sabbath because that would tempt him to uh, work. You couldn't uh, kill a mosquito or a flea on a Sabbath because that would be labor. And my favorite, my all-time favorite one is this. A woman could not look into a mirror on a Sabbath, pluck out a gray hair. Why? That would be reaping on the Sabbath. Now, of course, it's kind of comical, but the sad thing is what God intended to be a blessing, what God gave as a gift, the gift of rest, the gift of Sabbath, became a burden to people. And in fact, ultimately, it became just a, a frustration because people couldn't keep it perfectly. Now, in this setting, uh, the research is in. What the religious establishment was frustrated with is they picked the grain, they rubbed it in their hands, and they ate it. And so they were guilty of four violations of, of the Sabbath according to the code. And so, again, the religious establishment is frustrated at Jesus' disciples for just basically eating on the Lord's day. Now, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus pushes back against tradition. So track with me here. Look at this passage. He confronts them. He says, in this way, you, the religious establishment, have revoked God's word because of your tradition. Hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. And notice this next phrase, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. And so what does Jesus do? He confronts them head on. And, and the irony here is, uh, the picking of grain to care for people's needs was endorsed by the scripture going back all the way to the book of Deuteronomy. And so it demonstrates that God cares for people. He gives the gift of Sabbath and he even gives permission to uh, you know, get the grain and enjoy it, eat it, and meet a need. And so the gripe with Jesus and his disciples is because they did it on the Sabbath, the day of rest, not because there was a prohibition. Now, let's go back to our passage, Luke chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him, that he told them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know what's beautiful about Jesus? He didn't argue with them. He takes them right back to the Word of God. He refers them to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and he says, haven't you read? Look what David did. He goes into the holy place. He takes the showbread. He's hungry with his men, and they eat it together. And so what do we learn? We learn this, that human need overrules ritual every time. When the Pharisees objected, what does Jesus do? There's a parallel passage in, in Mark chapter 2. He says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so remember the Sabbath is a gift, and God meets human needs. He blesses us. He gives us rest. 
And so Jesus challenges the religious tradition elevating truth, the word of God, as the sole authority for faith practice. That's why Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, say these beautiful words. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Notice this next phrase, folks. Don't add to his words or he'll rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. You know, I'm very grateful this morning for my spiritual heritage. I grew up in kind of an institutional church and I learned a lot about God and even some of the Bible. But as I reflected on some of the traditions of the church that really weren't biblical but were practiced as sacred, it kind of broke my heart reflecting on some of those. One in particular was I was taught, I was raised to not confess my sins directly to Jesus Christ, the great high priest, but rather to confess my sins to a man, a a priest of the church. And then when I learned what Scripture said, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What 1 John teaches, that we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Therefore, we have a uh, high priest who cares, who intercedes on our behalf. Another tradition that I grew up in that Uh, was pretty sad is that the word of God and the dogma of the church had equal authority. And boy, over the centuries, that has created quite a bit of conflict when the church has equal authority to Scripture. And then what happens is the Protestant Reformation, and there's five beautiful tenets that came out of that. One is solo scriptura. That's what Proverbs 30 is all about. That scripture is the sole authority for the faith practice. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing the Pharisees back to the basics, to the word of God. Why are you adding traditions, man-made rules, codes that become a burden and not a blessing? Stick to the word of God, solo scriptura. And so... Uh, The first thing we learn from Christ is we we focus on truth and we discern tradition. Some traditions are valid because they they help us worship, they help us experience God, but they should never become a burden uh, where practice we earn merit or favor with God. And so pursuit number two, pursue compassion and forsake judgmentalism. Look again to our text. It's Luke 6, the next uh, five or six verses. Beginning with verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was paralyzed. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the paralyzed hand, get up and stand here. He got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on a Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at all of them, he told them, stretch out your hand. He did so. His hand was restored. They, however, notice this, folks, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. I find that a remarkable contrast. 
Here is Jesus being compassionate, expressing mercy, reaching out to a man with a withered hand. Let's take a look at the cultural context. Just imagine what it would be like to be male in an agrarian society and have a paralyzed hand, a withered hand. It'd be hard to farm. It'd be hard to provide. There'd probably be some shame. Maybe he was even relegated to begging. And what does Christ do? On the Sabbath, on a holy day, a day of worship, he blesses. He reaches out with a heart of compassion. He heals. And notice the judgmentalism. Notice how the religious establishment responds. They are ticked off. They are frustrated. And from this point on, they begin plotting what they're going to do to Jesus. You know, one of the greatest hurts to Christianity is what I call moving from traditionalism to legalism to judgmentalism. Like the Pharisees, legalists get caught up in the traditions of man, man-made rules, and they fail to see what the Apostle James taught, which is so beautiful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, relationships, not rules, are prioritized in Scripture. Loving your neighbor as yourself, the second great command Love, not legalism, must be foremost in our lives as we minister like Jesus. Sadly, many legalists today, just like the Pharisees, feel like we're not able to hang around with sin sinful people. Why? Because maybe we'll become contaminated. But the church today must act like Jesus, not judgmentally, but out of heart of compassion and care for people. Serve them, bless them in the name of the Lord. Luke is emphatic that Jesus loved people. Jesus accepted people. Jesus had compassion on people, especially to those who were broken. Religion says, God loves you if. The Bible says, Jesus loves you, period. All you have to do is look at Luke chapters 4 and 5, and you see the care, the ministry. Luke 4, he goes into the synagogue. He heals a demon-possessed man. Immediately after, he goes over to Peter's mother-in-law and blesses her and heals her. Then Peter, who feels so sinful, depart from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. He says, Peter, you have the credentials to be part of the band of brothers. Follow me. And then the kicker, when he invited a tax collector, uh, the epitome of a sinner, to be one of his band of brothers, uh, boy, people were frustrated. And that man's name was Levi. But then we read in Matthew 9:36, and I think this is just a huge summary statement for Jesus' ministry. When he saw the crowds, how did Jesus respond? He felt compassion for them because they were weary, they were worn out like sheep without a shepherd. One of my favorite stories about compassion in contrast to judgmentalism comes from the Billy Graham family. Some of you uh, may remember the name Jim Baker. Years ago, he was a televangelist known globally, had a ministry called PTL, had a theme park. It was a big name in Christendom. And uh, sadly, he uh, was convicted of extortion, and he was put in prison for five years. 
The week before he was to get out of prison, Franklin Graham contacted him and said, listen, Jim, we're going to help you when you get out. I want to get you a car. I want to get you a place to live and uh, help you get a job. And here's what Jimmy Baker said to Franklin Graham. He says, listen, you don't want any part of me. You don't want to tarnish your name by attaching yourself to benevolence and care to Jim Baker. I'm too hot right now. And here's what Franklin said. He said, Jim, listen, you were my friend before you went to prison, and now you're going to be my friend after prison. I love what Franklin said. And he says, if people don't like it, I'm ready for a fight. Well, that first week that he was out of prison, Ruth Graham called the halfway house that Jimmy was living in and asked them if he could come to church, and they agreed. That Sunday, Jimmy Baker, ex-con, walks into church. Rows are filled with the Graham family, and he sits down. And Jimmy says he'll never, ever forget when Ruth Graham walked down and sat next to him. And here's what he said. He said, she, Ruth, walked down the aisle, sat next to inmate 07407-058. Ruth Graham, Franklin Graham, the Graham family told me that day that I was not only their friend, but I was a friend of God. And that was a healing moment. It would have been so easy to be judgmental. Let him reap what he sows. You know, he's... He ripped off Christendom. He defamed the name of Christ. But the Graham family showed compassion and showed mercy because mercy always triumphs over judgment. And so, again, there's such a contrast in this passage. And, and God calls us to a lifestyle of compassion, a lifestyle of mercy as we serve people. Now, lifestyle number three, pursue spiritual rest and resist performance. And friends, again, this is so important to what Christianity truly communicates, that God calls us to enter into spiritual rest. And so the Sabbath was a picture of that, a shadow of the reality to come. So one of the things that we discover as we look in the Gospels is Jesus really valued the Sabbath. He constantly practiced it. He honored it. He taught on the Sabbath. Going back to Luke chapter 4, 16, uh, Luke already told us that Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as usual, key statement, he entered the synagogue when? On the Sabbath day and stood up to read. In Luke 6, 6, our passage, on the Sabbath day, he entered a synagogue and he was teaching. And so in all six controversies that we see in the four gospel accounts, Jesus never questioned the principle or practice of the Sabbath. In fact, he engaged it wholeheartedly. The tension is how the religious establishment codified the, the Sabbath and how Jesus was bringing freedom and life and ministry. And so in Mark 2, 27, we've already seen this, but it's worth noting again, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then in this chapter in Luke, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And so the issue, the real controversy, is not about honoring uh, or dishonoring the Sabbath. The real issue is about performance and perfectly aligning oneself with man-made rules of Sabbath-keeping. You know, the Apostle Paul helps us out here because if anybody 
wanted to keep those 1,521 injunctions about what you couldn't do on the Sabbath, it was Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was all in in keeping the law. But you know what he wrote in Colossians chapter 2? He wrote a very liberating truth regarding uh, the Sabbath. Let me show that to you. Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Paul says this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So Paul says the religious laws of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, are a shadow of the reality to come. And what is the reality? The reality is Christ. These regulations were a type of the archetype. Jesus Christ. At Calvary, Jesus established a new covenant and therefore, according to Paul, nailed the old covenant to the tree. And so at Calvary, Jesus says this, and it's beautiful, it is finished. And it begs the question, what is finished? John 17, 4 gives us the answer. Jesus praying to his Father, I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What is that work, folks? Jesus performed so we don't have to. Jesus worked so we can stop working. Our Savior died so we might live. Therefore, in Christ, we have the privilege to enjoy a spiritual rest by trusting him, by resting in his finished work at Calvary. And again, the religious establishment, they are working, they are keeping, they are practicing, they are doing, they are making the grade, performing. Jesus says, rest in me. What a gift. Now finally, pursuit number four, pursue the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at verse five. It's, it's really the capstone of this passage. He told them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, the bottom line of religion suggests that you and I can do this Christian thing, this Christian life on our own. Just work a little harder. Have a little bit more discipline. Just perform better today. Fundamentally, some of you, Christianity as a religion, see it as our effort to be like Jesus. But C.S. Lewis helps us out. He said this, he says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. I love that. In other words, we can't make the grade, we can't perform. It's impossible to keep the code of Sabbath 1,521 ways to do it. And so Christianity is not about our effort, but rather Jesus' effort to be himself in us. Man-made attempts to get to God will fail every time, and there are no exceptions. You know what's remarkable? Have you ever considered how Jesus lived his life and how dependent he was on his Father? How he wasn't a performer, but rather he abided in his Father. Let me show you a few beautiful passages. John 15, or John 5, 9, Jesus said this, I assure you, the Son of Man is not able to do anything on his own. 
but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. Folks, that is remarkable. There was such a relationship that Jesus had with the Father. He sees what the Father does, and he acts accordingly. In addition, John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, Son of Man, you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father has taught me. Therefore, the scriptures are very clear. Jesus lived totally dependent on his Father. And by inference, how much more so should we live totally dependent on Jesus? Jesus made it clear, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, friends, it's not about performing. It's not about working. It's not about keeping man-made codes. It's about abiding in Christ. The Bible calls it walking in the Spirit, living a life that is Spirit-empowered, Spirit-led, divine, uh, and the branches staying connected. That's the beauty of this faith journey. And so lordship is essential to more of Jesus and less of religion. Why? Because apart from Jesus being Lord, we can't do anything. We need him desperately. And so in closing, just a few questions. And these are beautiful questions from this controversy. The first question we have to ask is, is Jesus Lord of our life? Is he truly seated on the throne of our life? And that's a big question, folks. And it's a question that only you can answer. And the second question is, is pretty close to it. Have you entered his spiritual rest? Are you resting in him? His finished work at Calvary, it is finished. The work he came to do that we couldn't do for ourselves. And then... Are we letting the word of God and not traditions of men be the foundation of our life? Solo scriptura, what a beautiful thing. And then finally, the privilege to be like Christ, living compassionately, living mercifully, not being judgmental, looking down on people as the religious establishment did, but looking with hearts of compassion and pouring ourselves out, extending God's love extending his mercy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for our Savior who lives so beautifully. And thank you that as we enter his rest, uh, we can enjoy life. We can be blessed uh, by Sabbath and, and all the gifts you've given us in life. Thank you for your word this morning. Father, may it be the sole authority of our life. Oh, God, help us to not be judgmental, to look down, but to be people of compassion and mercy. And Father, most importantly, that Jesus would be Lord of our lives. He would have center stage. And so, Father, these are big prayers. These are huge requests. But we pray that you will grow us in these areas for your glory for your blessing and we thank you in Jesus name amen let's worship together